The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The financial services business is being upended by small companies that are making funding processes like mortgages more efficient for customers. Hear my conversation with one of the pioneers of fintech, Al Goldstein, on how he's reinventing not only this model, but the private equity and venture capital one as well. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Welcome to the Exchange Conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Lauren Silva Laughlin, the Global Deals Editor of Reuters Breaking Views, which is the financial commentary arm of Reuters News. And I'm coming to you from Manhattan, New York. For this week's episode, I sat down with Al Goldstein, founder of several fintech companies, including Avant, and his latest and greatest, Stoke Lane, which is something of a private equity and venture capital hybrid. Al was an early pioneer in the fintech business, having started companies in it since 2003. He says there's plenty of room for competition as he and others create firms that bring massive financial outfits like JP Morgan up into the digital realm. He is also an immigrant from Uzbekistan and has some strong views on how America should open its doors. Hey, Al. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Lauren. Thank you for having me uh, on today. So Al is the chairman, CEO, co-founder, and title extraordinaire of Stoke Lane and many other companies that he's started. He still has a role in. Stoke Lane is an investment holding company focused on transforming analog businesses to be more digital in the fire space. And I think you're probably, Al, going to have to explain exactly what all of that means. Oh yeah, I'd, I'd love to. But by the way, it's so great to reconnect. I, I obviously you and I have known each other a long time, so fun to do yeah, this. I should I should, <laughs> I should add a little little footnote here that Al and I started out in the working world together as investment bankers, little analyst worker bees at Deutsche Bank. We worked on a couple of deals together. Oh, it's it's a great great fun. Um, yeah, I think you, Al, you, Al, you went to a much more lucrative path. I took I took the journalism path, and you started several companies. I won't I won't um, embarrass all of our our listeners by telling them how much you're worth. I I, I don't know about that. I I think I think as as always, it's all in the eye of the beholder, and um, the stew is always <laughs> it's always when you're on the inside, it's all messy. But I think you did last a little bit longer than I did. Uh, but it was maybe, uh, maybe a couple of months. Yeah, what what a fun what a fun learning experience I wouldn't wish upon uh, you know my enemies. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, Glenn, tell us what that means. What what do you mean by first? Maybe explain a little bit what fire exactly is, and I think that will probably help. What what you mean by sort of analog business to be more digital? Because I think it's in a really kind of big area of finance. For sure, for sure. So so let's talk about fire. And we we didn't make up the term. It's it's one that the U.S. government actually uses. What it encapsulates is finance, insurance, and real estate. And and obviously, it's a pretty cool moniker. We're trying to help brand, but it encapsulates nearly 20% of the entire economy, and it's growing tremendously fast. It used to be 10% 30 years ago. And the reality is that so much of what the U.S. economy today represents is services that are focused on delivering better 
financial services, better insurance products, better ways in which people use real estate. So that, that that's what FIRE is. And what Stoic Lane is really trying to do is be an investor and an operator in helping smaller companies that really aren't venture-backed startups that are more, more traditional businesses to embrace technology and to become more efficient. And so we're investing in those kind of businesses. We're bringing better operations, better technology, better support to help those companies grow over the long term. So you're really sort of in like what I might call the plumbing part of financial services. Is that right? I mean, what do you mean by transforming from analog to, to digital? Is this effectively the, the sort of space in the world that is helping banks just move their entire business online? Well, that's pretty much where I've spent my whole career, as, as we talked about post my uh, my days at Deutsche Bank playing with spreadsheets. I, <laughs> I, I sort of fell into fintech before fintech was a thing. And 20- because you founded Avant, which effectively was the sort of first peer to peer lender. Yeah. And before that, we, we actually started a company in 2003, uh, straight out of Deutsche Bank called Innova. And, uh, and company companies around, it's one of the biggest short term digital lending companies, uh, really the digital lender before there was digital lending. And it's a public company. It's been great. And and my learning from that experience has been the the entire experience that customers want across every product needs to be digital. This this is what we all want across the way we buy goods, the way we order order products, the way we get our financial services. Maybe you could just kind of walk me through a company that you've invested in and pretend like you were explaining to, to say, my mom, because um, you're, you know, maybe your mom is a lot more financially sophisticated than my mom is. But say, a hey, mom, uh, um, how or dad, frankly, what you do to these companies to bring them up to the digital age? Yeah, no. So, so for sure. So the first investments that we made are really in the mortgage universe and mortgage is a massive market. Most people that have gone and applied for a mortgage realize how painful the process really is. And it really doesn't need to be this painful. And you, as you know, it, it takes mm-hmm. a minimum of 30 days, realistically mm-hmm. 45 to 60 days, documentation galore, paper. And so we see a pretty big opportunity to digitize that entire experience, and starting with the entire mortgage process to make that really more digital, more seamless, and then everything that goes around it. So getting an appraisal getting your title policy more efficiently and cheaper, getting your documents to be executed more digitally. And, and a lot of that has, has really been transformed a little bit, but it's, it's still pretty backwards in terms of mm-hmm. the rest of our experiences. You, you think about, we can order goods online, they show up in a couple of hours. So you want to try to disintermediate the mortgage broker, sort of like the Zillow, but for mortgages, if that's kind of right. Well, so one of the first investments we made is we invested in a digital mortgage company, an originator that's really using technology to make the mortgage process more efficient. And the goal is really pretty simple. It's to make the process easier and cheaper for consumers and really take out the fees, make the process more transparent. So that that's the first investment. And the second investment we made is in a company focused on the appraisal because as part of a mortgage, you need to have an appraisal. And the process to get an appraisal takes too long it's painful. Uh, it's often plagued with errors and mm-hmm. it's costly. And so our whole idea is you can use technology to make the process faster, to make it more efficient, to make it more integrated. And ultimately, the consumer is the beneficiary. The whole idea is to, how do you make the, cus- the customer's you know, product cost less and make it be faster and make it more transparent? So do companies like JP Morgan 
buy the products that these companies provide or who is a sort of paying client of these companies? Well, ultimately, the customer is the person that needs a mortgage. But uh -huh. if you go to JP Morgan to get a mortgage, they're still going to need an appraisal. And so they're going to go typically to an appraisal management company or an independent appraiser and order an appraisal. And that's going to take a while. It's going to be pretty painful. There's going to be lots of overhead between you and you as the homeowner going back and forth with the appraiser to try to schedule it properly. And, and that's the process we're really trying to make what, way more efficient. That's interesting. Okay, so those are the investments that Stoic Lane makes. But the thing I think that caught my eye in some of the materials that I've seen that you guys have are, is this sort of, well, two things, I guess, this, the funding mechanism of the vehicle itself, which is something like, it seems like Sequoia, you know, the sort of veteran VC firm has announced, but also this concept of what you say is kind of sitting in this white, what you call a white space between private equity and venture capital. So maybe we can talk about the latter first. Like, I think it resonated with me that private equity, these materials showed that private equity sort of does this asset flipping kind of financial arbitrage. BC, on the other hand, it just seems to be like they're funding money losing businesses and shoving those companies out on the public market as fast as they possibly can, but having <laughs> massive return expectations. That's just my skeptical view. So <laughs> where does kind of Stoke Lane, we say it resides in the middle, but how exactly does that work? Well, so I'll tell you our thesis. I, it, and obviously, there are a lot of really good private equity investors, a lot of great venture investors. And, and I've spent a lot of my career raising capital from venture investors and think they've done a tremendous amount of good in helping companies create better value. But my, my general belief is there's a lot of opportunity to actually do private equity investing better. And what I mean by that, a traditional private equity firm has a pretty short model they, they have a pretty short turn time where they need to buy a company, do whatever they're going to do to the company to fix it and sell it over the course of five years. And five years is just a really short period of time when you're dealing with technology timelines and user experience and making changes to legacy established businesses. And so that's one problem. The other problem is alignment of interests. And typically in funds, what that means is that you as an investor in a fund aren't always aligned with the interests of the sponsors or the managers of the fund. Because a lot of times sponsors get paid to raise capital and manage mm -hmm. large, large amounts of capital, right? So to mm -hmm. me, the whole, the whole idea is create the best alignment of interest that you can and really invest for the long term. Warren Buffett style long term investment where you you invest in a business, you spend a lot of time helping that business to grow more efficiently, to be better, to provide better products to its customers. But you're not looking to sell when year four turns or year five comes around. You're really looking to help that business grow over the long term and, and to generate better returns for investors, but also create better products because of continuity. And the main difference between this model and venture is, like you said, venture investors are, are looking to invest in super high growth tech oriented businesses. Generally, they're losing money and, and you create great companies. I mean, you know, you have companies mm -hmm. like obviously Google and Facebook and Coinbase, et cetera, and, and Avant and Amount, just to throw those in there uh, that get created. <laughs> so, but our, our view is we're, we're not playing in that world. We're really helping small companies that, that don't have access to that kind of capital to really take on the profile of these high growth tech oriented companies, because we're the ones that are helping them track tech talent, attract data engineers, attract the capital to be able to actually grow faster by adopting technology. I guess the thing that I don't understand about this 
sort of permanent capital funding mechanism, though, is that there is potentially a mismatch between your time horizon for an investment, which is kind of unclear, I guess, and your investor's time horizon, which is also unclear, but could potentially be totally different than you know, where and how your money's wrapped up. And I think we saw some of this in the financial crisis where the market would just sort of just backed up and stopped up and people all wanted their money out at the same time. And these structures, or at least the Sequoia structure that, that we had looked at, it was a slightly concerning in the sense that this all sounds really nice when valuations are going up and nobody really wants their money immediately. But as, as we know, that's not really how the real world works. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you, you and I, you and I were there in 2007 and eight. I was, I saw it. Yep. <laughs> so, so I, I, I'd like to joke that Sequoia saw what we were doing and, and uh, tried to emulate it. And, and we obviously love the fact that Sequoia is trying to help us popularize these permanent capital structures and holding companies. But I would say they're not, they're, they're permanent in that they're structured like a company. The shareholders of the company could always sell shares. And so the idea is in a fund structure, you have a defined time frame. But if things go really bad, you're still going to have capital locked up. You're not going to be able to, to necessarily get your capital. Plus, because of the way LP interests, and this is going pretty technical, but LP interests are, are structured, they're pretty hard to sell. What we're creating is really a company, and we're going to have shareholders. And ultimately, if our shareholders want liquidity or they want to sell their shares, we're going to help them create a market for those shares, and the company will be a buyer of those shares. But they don't need to force us to sell an investment that we think is a good investment. That's really the disconnect. And I think that's exactly the same thing Sequoia is trying to do. And there are a number of other models that are similar IAC is a public company that's obviously done phenomenally mm-hmm. well and Liberty Media and Endeavor. And there are a number of private mm-hmm. ones that are emerging. So I actually think it's a trend. So is it the type of thing that can be, I mean, I suppose it can be managed with timing your investments the right way. But are you planning on having this being a publicly traded entity or how do you get that sort of company to have the liquidity if somebody wants to, or a lot of people say, want to sell? Yeah, I mean, I think the goal is to build a company that can eventually be a public company, but uh, that's going to take some time. And in the meantime, our, our goal is to create a secondary market for the shares so that, that we can match buyers and sellers. And that's becoming easier and easier to do in a digital world with platforms that enable that. Interesting. Okay, so buy now, pay later. This seems to be like the buzzword that everybody's trying to talk about and figure out you you've sort of dabbled in that too and you have some interest in there is that through stoic lane or another entity no so this is before stoic and and i don't know if you want to go back or not but amount which is the tech company we built that that really is helping banks to digitize again back to this whole theme of where i've spent my whole career using technology to digitize these financial services experiences so Affirm and Klarna and Afterpay, a number of those companies have obviously done really, really well delivering a better experience for consumers by being able to to buy the products but pay for them later, hence buy now, pay later. And a lot of the banks want to compete and an amount is enabling a lot of the largest banks to really be able to compete with the affirms of the world uh, in that space. How do you do that? Really by providing technology. And, and you think about you know, what, what is that experience? The banks have capital, they have regulatory infrastructure, they have brands. A lot of times they struggle with technology. And so Mount has a tech platform that we built from the ground up originally for ourselves, for Avant, which is a business we've built over the last eight or nine years. And now we've completely rebuilt that technology to, to really be a SaaS platform for the bank so they can 
instead of building it themselves, which takes massive amounts of time and money, they could partner with us and deploy products to consumers. How many companies do you have, Al? <laughs> Dude, it's funny. <laughs> I, I, I don't think. I don't, yeah, well, I don't. I don't think I quite quite uh, meant for it to happen this way. But uh, my whole thesis for Stoke Lane is when you when you have great companies that you were lucky enough to be a part of, you don't really ever want to sell. And so it's it's kind of happened over time that I'm chairman of three businesses plus Stoic Lane. But going forward, my idea is that everything I'm doing is really Stoic Lane focused. So I guess then like last question about these businesses, and then I want to I want to talk about a little bit more about your background. But you were early. I mean, let's see, two, Avant, you said, or well, your first business, you started in 2003. So you've been you've been sort of in this business for 18 years. Is that right? Wow. That, well, that's we're, we're 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 not on video here, but hence all the gray hair. Yeah. <laughs> so do you feel like now though that lots of people have come into your world and how do you feel about some of the newer companies that have gone public and i just wonder if you're you know you have a cool head about you you've seen investors come and go and companies come and go you know is that frustrating to see some of these sort of younger companies going out there and you feel like maybe they're not ready given the fact that they haven't been through several cycles? Well, you, are you, you're talking about the public markets specifically? Yeah, I'm talking about public markets, but yeah, mostly public markets, but also the sort of faddish move towards starting businesses that, that all sort of play in the re- arena where you are. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I sort of have a, a maybe, maybe naive, but a, a somewhat, somewhat positive take on it in that um, I, I, I love the fact that we have former employees that are out starting companies that are now billion dollar companies. And, and the whole opportunity set, I think, has just grown so much that while we play in specific verticals, there are a lot of companies playing different verticals. And, and obviously competition is, is always challenging, but I think it forces us to be better. And not every company is going to be successful. I mean, there's probably some sort of bubbles uh, and overfunding in various spaces, albeit it's, it's hard to say at any given point in time, which they are. So my focus is always on building great companies. How do you build businesses that all ultimately will create shareholder value, will create really happy customers? And so not every investor is going to do well. Not every company is going to do well. But I, I'm still super, super excited about the growth potential of, of these spaces. At the same time, as an investor, we see a lot more opportunity where Stoke Lane is focused. And this idea of really just being one of, of a very small number of investors looking in this, in this arena, as opposed to, to every, every venture and growth investor that's looking to, today to invest in, in fintech and insurtech and everything else, which, which is just really hard when you're you're really fighting for mindshare amongst a large collection of very smart people. That's interesting. So it's, it's more, well, th- actually, that's sort of a good segue into what I want to talk to you about next, which is your background as an immigrant to the United States. Maybe you could just kind of give all our listeners a little bit of history there. Yeah, no. So my, my family immigrated to the U.S. in the late 1980s from the Soviet Union, uh, and I was eight years old and had to... to you know, sort of live the, the immigrant story. And I make a bunch of jokes about it. My, my wife is also an immigrant. Uh, she came from St. Petersburg, which is this beautiful city in, in Russia. And I came from Tashkent 
in, in Uzbekistan, which is which is a great city, but she, you know, she sort of makes fun of it as, as the little village, that, that, <laughs> which is, I think, emblematic of our relationship. But uh, we bo- we both got to live the, the, the American dream. And so I, I, I mean, I love the opportunity that America gives you. And clearly we came here in search of in search of freedom. And as a little kid, you know, you don't really get all the all the mechanics. And so I I Americanized very quickly, but it's so been a you, phenomenal ride. You then you grew up in Illinois, right? And started, I guess, in what third grade in an American school. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm just I knew Illinois, <laughs> but I'm guessing about third grade, yeah. given your age, eight years old. And I know that you've talked a lot about immigration, immigrants, and employment, and you know, as you say, you're competing for talent. I mean, sort of, what do you think about the immigration slash employment picture in the United States right now, and sort of through the Trump administration into the into the Biden administration? Yeah, I mean, I can just tell you that uh, to, to me that, and and this is, I think, beyond those two administrations, this has been going back a long time. In that, across our companies, I've been very, very fortunate to, to, to have been a part of a number of, of successful businesses. And I, I think between all of them, they employ, I, I don't know, at this point, close to four or 5,000 people today. I, I would say we have at, at the technology engineering product levels, probably 50% of our employees are, are immigrants or, or, or first generation to this country. And and that's what I could speak to the most. I I don't know about the political debate. I, that's not something I I necessarily want to wade into. But I I think it's pretty clear that America does not produce enough talent to fill the needs of all the companies that are trying to create value. And and um, we've had a hard time with with H one Bs and and visas over time. And and I I think we've done you know we've done a really good job. But the reality is they're just not enough and the quotas are too low and great people that get educated in the U.S. want to stay in the U.S. and want to create value and they end up not being able to a lot of times. And so my, my personal view is if you have the opportunity, you just want to bring in as many smart, hardworking people that want to come to the U.S. as possible. And those people will ultimately create value and create jobs and pay taxes. I think that's a uh, that's a sort of beyond my pay grade of how to actually do that, obviously. Well, that is very interesting perspective. Thank you so much for coming on today and talking to us a little bit about Stoke Lane and financial services and, and changing the way that we all get online and, and get our mortgages, as well as immigration. Really appreciate your time, Al. No, thank you so much, Lauren, for having me on. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Sharon Lamb in Toronto. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Acast. Also check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.